0: Hello, friends. Welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Malouf, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well.
1: I was at the um, Northwest Dharma Teachers Association Conference last weekend. It's a pretty cool organization. It's about 500 different sanghas are involved with over 5,000 members, I think, across Northern California, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Alaska, and parts of Canada. And so there were about 30 teachers from different parts of the country, from different lineages, coming together to just support each other as teachers. It's a totally unique experience, and it was my second time with those folks, and it was really lovely. One of the breakout groups. A Dharma Conference is just like any conference, except there's like not as much of a schedule, and things kind of just flow, and. Instead of an outline, there's bells. It's like it's kind of like going to a conference but in an alternative reality. It's just completely it's conferency, but the way Buddhists would do a conference. It just flows and sometimes there's it just dissolves into socializing and sometimes you're just there's silence and then we just meditate for twenty minutes and then we forget what we're doing. And there's like there was one point where we were all sitting and I can't remember what we were talking about because before I knew it, we sort of the conversation died down, and so you, tr- everyone, just started sitting. <laughs> so we just all started meditating. <laughs> there, there, was no need to do anything. So it was, it was awesome. Uh, to, but one of the breakout groups where we were talking about just sharing our experiences as teachers and the role we play in communities, and both the joy and the struggle of teaching the Dharma, and trying to find new ways to be able to take an inward experience that we've had and share it with other people so that they can not only get the experience, but f- but also figure out how to have that experience for themselves, right? And it's what I often talk about in many of the Dharma talks, where I comment on the fact that, you know, the Dharma is such an internal experience when we practice it, maybe not so much as it's embodied in the world when you get out into the world. But the, the inner experience of the Dharma, it takes a while to see the map inside. And it would be one thing for me to give you directions to like a restaurant down the street. I could just say, go out the door, down the stairs, make a left on this street, make a right, and then you'll. I could describe for you the place and you'd be easy to get to. But if I want to talk about piti or sukha or how to balance discernment with equanimity, how do we point inside to learn what the experiences are that have been handed down? it's not it's not an easy task. Um, and we we all kind of talked about how there's like some days where it's just it's just happening. you're like, "Oh, there's the Dharma. It's like totally working. And there's other days where you're just thinking, "What am I doing? this is <laughs> this isn't working at all." Where you have this sense of a part of the Dharma lights up and you can like, you know it's there. You're like, oh, this is exactly what equanimity is. I can feel it. The words are like working. And then there's other times you're like, should I even be teaching this? What am I doing? Like the Dharma just seems completely like untenable in some way. It just evaporates. And you're like, where is it? You know? So we just all shared those experiences of uh, the dharma sort of teaching us and us teaching the dharma and just that experience. it was, It's a lovely, uh, nurturing conversation. I really enjoyed it. And it made me think of the topic for the next few weeks, which is going to be basically focused on how do we learn the dharma? Like, What exactly are we learning and how do we go about doing that? How do we come to our practice in a way where we do feel like we're, we're learning the thing that we think we're supposed to be learning? And how do we know that we're actually doing that? because it's tough with the Dharma. It's not like learning... There are similarities with learning other things, like learning to play the piano, or learning to play soccer, or learning to paint, or whatever you're learning to do, whatever the, the activity might be. There are going to be similarities. It's a new skill, and you get used to it, and you get creative with it, and you kind of get good at it, and you're like, oh, I know how to meditate, and oh, I can notice sensations here, and loving-kindness is lighting up in a way I've never seen before. So we kind of have those experiences, but there's certainly some parts of the dharma that are continually challenging. And so I wanted to just start the conversation tonight, give a few examples of why the dharma is so challenging, and then kind of begin to have this conversation over the next few weeks, giving you some frameworks on how you might look at your practice, use your practice, and kind of check in with yourself. Of like, how am I learning the dharma? How am I learning meditation? How do I, what do I do with this? Um, so I think this might be helpful. I know it's been helpful for me to think it through one of the things that i always laugh at with the dharma is that the obvious challenge with with buddhism is that the term enlightenment is such a vague and elusive idea right liberation is so abstract in a lot of ways some of it's very tangible you know compassion and gratitude these kinds of tangible heart mind qualities but the goal of the path the liberation the freedom from suffering for all of us i think is this sort of pie-in-the-sky abstraction. It's like, what what does that actually mean to be liberated or unbound? I mean, it's just, it's kind of a lofty goal, right? Compared to other things we do with our life, this idea of an aspiration to be free from suffering. So the goal itself is kind of hard to put our fingers on. And I think it's rare in our lives that we begin to practice something without being totally clear with the goal right? We, we don't normally do that. If we're going to do something and learn something, we kind of know what we're doing. With the Dharma, there's this huge leap of faith where someone's like, hey, you can be free from suffering. Here's some tools. And we're like, okay, I think I'll practice those without even really understanding what the enlightenment thing is. And then when you ask a teacher, of course, they're like, well, I, um, I, you tell me, like, when you get there, let me know and we can talk about it, right? So it's rare in our lives that we practice something with an end goal, but we don't really totally know exactly where we're going the whole time we're doing it. So that's kind of embedded in some of the challenges of being meditators, is we're kind of feeling our way through this practice as we go. The, I wanted to read a few quotes uh, from the suttas of these, just a few little descriptions uh, about how enlightenment is described. And I tried to pick really different ones so you can see how different the descriptions of enlightenment are. One of the things that is challenging about awakening is that the awareness right now that we all have that is awake and aware to the sensations in this room, the awareness that's taking in the sense door contact of the sound of my voice and the colors and the shapes, your sense of being in the room, that awareness that is awake and aware to this moment is let go of as we move into awakening, right? Awareness is an aggregate. Remember, one of the five aggregates are things that we mistake for our true self. One of the aggregates is awareness. And so one of the challenges with this idea of awakening is that the very sense doors that we use to describe reality, including awareness itself, are not there in the experience. So it's beyond words. We can't put awakening into words. We can only use metaphors because the very mental processes that would normally describe an experience are not awake. It, that stuff has been, you've let go of that. And that letting go of that which is not what we are reveals that which we are, but it's not describable <laughs> with the normal words that we use or we can't point to like where this awakening supposedly is in the way that I can point to this little flower here and say, this is so tangible, I can hold it in my hand. Enlightenment is not something that simple that can be pointed to because the very experience of it is not experienced by the parts of us that are normally experiencing reality. So it becomes a little challenging. So I wanted to read just a few <laughs> of these descriptions. So this is one that's pretty, pretty common. Just as the great ocean has but one taste, the taste of salt, even so does this doctrine and discipline have but one taste, the taste of release. Oftentimes awakening is referred to as release, a sense of release. This quote is supposedly uh, from the night of the Buddha's awakening. Ignorance was destroyed. Knowledge arose. Darkness was destroyed. Light arose as happens in one who is heedful, ardent, and resolute." Different description. Here's another one. This is from a series of suttas that describe life after enlightenment, what the the monk monk or nun can expect to experience after enlightenment. Furthermore, the disciple of the noble ones lives at home with an awareness that is cleansed of the stain of stinginess, is freely generous, is open-handed, is delighting in being magnanimous, is responsive to requests, and delights in the distribution of alms." Another description of awakening. When I read that, <laughs> I'll have to tell you how my mind responded when I read that quote. So. It enlightened, I got the open-handedness, which is often a sense of compassion, right? An openness, transparency, authenticity in the Dharma. That image is there quite a bit. Um, so lives at home with an awareness cleansed of the stain of stinginess. And I thought to myself, ah, you know, it's, I definitely don't want to be stingy, but the promise of having an awareness that is cleansed of the stain of stinginess really wasn't that inspiring. <laughs> I was kind of like, if someone came to my door and said, hey, I've got this spiritual path, it's really hard, it's going to take your whole life, and when you're done, your awareness is going to be cleansed of the stain of stinginess, I probably would have said, you know, I kind of dig what you're you're all about, but I think I'm just going to sit here and watch Netflix. (laughs) I think I'm good. I, mean, I don't want to be stingy and all, but it's just that that description of awakening didn't like hook me the way other others really. And then I'll just, you know, another part of this I thought that was funny was the awakened being is responsive to requests. I was like, that's a very interesting, gentle sense of being responsive to each other, very responsive to requests. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Last week, when Doyle was helping us through the sutta, uh, sutta study, one of the things he mentioned was that enlightenment is often described in terms of fire. Fire was a big image in the Dharma. Uh, throughout the suttas, you see fire analogies and metaphors quite a bit. And Doyle had mentioned that nibbana or nirvana, when it's literally translated, there's a couple different ways. One is extinguishing or extinguished, and the other is unbinding or unbound. So again, there's this sense of ease, freedom, kindness, goodness. This is where we have this idea of enlightenment. I wanted to read, uh, since Doyle had referred to it, I wanted to read this little passage here from one of Tenisro Bhikkhu's book when he describes how fire is used in metaphors in the Dharma uh, because I think it it helps us to ground this idea of liberation. And this is how, uh, this is kind of a paraphrase, but I'll, I'll read it. To understand the implications of Nibbana in the present life, it is necessary to know something of the way in which fire is described in the Pali Canon. There, fire is said to be caused by the excitation or agitation of the heat property. To continue burning, it must have sustenance. Its relationship to its sustenance is one of clinging, dependence, and entrapment. When the fire goes out, the heat property is no longer agitated and the fire is said to be freed. Thus the metaphor of nirvana in this case would have implications of calming together with a sense of release from dependencies, attachments, and bondages. This in turn suggests that of all the attempts to describe the etymology of the word nirvana, the closest one would be nirvana, N-A-R. Nir means, means un, and vana means bound, unbound. The fire has been freed and is now released. So again, we use a lot of metaphors to understand this sense of liberation. Sometimes it's described as traits of the heart, sometimes it's metaphoric. There's often a sense of being non, uh, non-attached, non-clinging, non-dependent. But you know, as much as those uh, metaphors are there, I know in my own practice, the idea of uh, awakening is still kind of an abstraction. It's still like sort of out there in the ether somewhere. So when we start talking about how we practice, it's just important to remember that it's a little bit challenging putting our fingers on where the goal <laughs> is. And so as long as we have sort of this intuitive sense for what it means to us, we can sort of orient our practice. Like, OK, awakening is kind of this thing Kind of get what it is. I'm gonna go in that direction and see what happens. We're gonna move in that direction and then we'll see where it lands. The second challenge we have with learning the Dharma and teaching the Dharma is that the practice instructions themselves are often contradictory and paradoxical. And this is, I love this fact of the Dharma. Uh, So I'm gonna read a couple instructions down that we're all very familiar with, but I'm gonna point out how challenging they are when you actually hear them. So, here's some of the challenges we have in learning the dharma. One of the things we're taught is to be here now, right? Be here now. And we're told that we're going there, to enlightenment. So we're told, to get there, you have to be here. But you have to go there, but you need to be here first. And if you want to be there too much, then you can't, right? This is how we learn the dharma. Be here now. But there's this goal over here. So, just saying, there's there's a little thing there. We're told to cultivate positive traits and to let go of unskillful ones, foundational teaching of the Dharma, and yet we're asked to accept ourselves exactly as we are. (laughs) How do we do that? How do we accept ourselves exactly as we are and want to change at the same time? How does that work? Another challenge. (laughs) We're told to let go of desire because desire is the source of all suffering, but cultivate desire to have freedom. We're told to walk a path But remember, there's nowhere to go because you're already there. (laughs) Okay? No challenge there. We're told that we can heal from the past and create a future that has long-term happiness and well-being, but we don't want to be in either of those places. We want to be in the present, because that's the only place that we can get to those places to do the healing, right? So we have this real paradox of where the mind is supposed to be, where it's supposed to go, and how we move between the two or three places, past, present, in future. The last one I think that is kind of amusing is that we're asked to cultivate love and compassion for all things and all people, but remember that all of these things are not self and already broken. Also fun. What's interesting is that in the Dharma, we just take these as no big deal. We're like, yeah, I'll dive in. Those instructions make total sense. And we begin, you know, walking in the practice, But those instructions would make no sense in any other place in our life if someone actually asked us to do that. So let's put this in a different context. Imagine where the confusion and contradiction would be if these were instructions that were given in the workplace. right? So your boss comes to you and asks you to complete a task, but reminds you that the task has already been completed. Your boss asks you to show a real desire and initiative to complete something, but reminds you that the more desire you have to complete the thing, the less likely it is that it will come to pass. Doesn't make sense in that context. Another one, you're hired for a job, but you're told not to get too attached to the job because you don't exist and you've already been fired. (laughs) This is the dharma in real life, right? We're asked to do these crazy things, to accept these really bizarre principles. And we jump in, and we're like, oh, this is great and fun. And then we wonder why it's so confusing as we try to meditate and learn to do the practice. So i just like to remind us that the practice is really interesting. There's all of these paradoxes of practice, with language, and past, and future, and present, and clinging, and grasping, and identify, but don't identify. And part of learning the Dharma is unpacking some of these paradoxes and understanding what is the teaching underneath that's being asked here. Why do those paradoxes actually exist? And why is there contradiction in the experience of the Dharma? So much wisdom comes out of unpacking these paradoxes and realizing, oh, there's wisdom. Once we understand why it seems confusing, wisdom arises right there in the place what appears to be paradoxical is actually a moment of insight. So when we can look at these sort of contradiction points, they appear to be contradictory, they're actually just a slight shift of perception and then awakening to the nature of what is so becomes available. So those are one of the things we'll be talking about in the coming weeks is how do we access some of these points and how do we learn the Dharma in a way that really Initiates this sense of awakening and how do we get past some of the stumbling blocks that get a little confusing along the way? I wanted to start that conversation with just a little framework here for how we learn the Dharma. I Like this framework. It's been a while since I've talked about it This framework as I've understood it in my practice is referred to the three prajnas the three kinds of knowledge They're really three tools. Sometimes they're referred to as the Three Wisdom Tools. And there are three ways that we learn the Dharma or practice our actual meditation and our study of suttas and those kinds of things. And there's three of these prajnas, right? So I'm going to tell you what they are, and I'm going to show you kind of how they interconnect. And it will be obvious. It's a really simple framework. But it's considered to be the three wisdom tools of the meditator who goes in to study and practice the Dharma. The first prajna is listening and hearing. And this has to do with listening and hearing the ideas of the Dharma, right? The concepts of the Dharma, the conceptualizations, the Eightfold Path, the Four Noble Truths, the Five Hindrances, Seven Enlightenment Factors, Six Strengths, I don't know, you can go all down the list. So the first one is how we listen and hear the Dharma. And that can be reading books, listening to Dharma talks, talking with each other, all these different ways that we understand the idea of the Dharma. This idea of the first prajna is that part of our practice does have to have some intellectual understanding. There has to be some framework for us to hang the fruits of our practice on. It's like having a uh, little hook that we can put a painting or a piece of artwork on. We have to have some place to hang these beautiful things, compassion, joy, equanimity. We have to have some basic understanding of what we're supposed to be doing and why we're supposed to do it, even if we're not feeling it inside, even if it's up in our heads a little bit. So the Buddha understood that part of teaching the Dharma and learning the Dharma is just understanding the theory. What is it that we're supposed to be doing here? What was the Buddha's idea of happiness? What was his idea of stress? Why do we have the Brahma-viharas? Like It's just the basic intellectual understanding of the Dharma. It's the tools. So with that first framework, we move into the second prajna, which is contemplation. Sometimes it's referred to as reflection. And this is very interesting, the way this is described in the teachings. We have the understanding of what the Buddha taught, which you can pick up in a book and you can read down the list. The next phase is Not really phase, but another step is contemplation or reflection. And what that refers to is taking these ideas and asking ourselves, what does this mean to me in my life? Right? What does it mean to me? So we start off with this abstraction. Okay, there's four noble truths. Great. There's suffering. There's a cause of suffering. There's an end of suffering. There's a path out of suffering. Makes sense. Okay, that makes sense. What does it mean to me, though? What does it mean in my life? What do the Four Noble Truths mean to me in my relationship with my friends, being at work, being out in the world, my relationship with the planet, my children? What does it mean to me as a person? So the Buddha acknowledged, look, I've got these teachings and I can tell you what the teachings are, but then you really want to ask yourself, well, that sounds great, but what does it mean to me? This is where you remember oftentimes when I teach different subjects, I'll say creativity, customize your practice, be creative with how you're exploring the Dharma. Walk in the footsteps of the Buddha, but make sure you remember your feet are doing the walking, like the personalization. So the Buddha understood as a teacher, OK, I've got my tools, but you need to have some ownership of them. You have to ask yourself, OK, there's the brahma viharas sympathetic joy, compassion, equanimity. What beautiful ideas. It's fantastic. Well, What does it mean to me, though, in my relationships, in my heart, in my experience of being a person? So I think it's really cool when you look at the way the Buddha talked about teaching or talked about learning the Dharma. You could see that he was really aware of himself as a teacher. He's like, I've got this experience and I'm going to encourage you to sort of learn how to learn the experience that was being intended to convey. So the first one, listening and hearing, how we take in the information, and then how does this concept or idea of the Dharma, what does it mean for me in my life? And then the third one (laughs) is meditation. No surprise there. Meditation, though, in this context, is the experience of taking the ideas, finding out what they mean to us, and then directly experiencing them inside. So when you look at these three prajnas, when you look at these three tools of wisdom, what the Buddha is saying is we start with kind of an abstract idea, and then we move towards a more personalized experience, And what we're doing is we're going deeper into direct contact in the heart and mind of the practice. It starts off as an idea. Yay, there's enlightenment. The flame goes out. I'd like some of that. What does that mean for me? And then we go into the meditation and we directly touch on those experiences inside. And that's when the practice really starts to light up. And what the Buddha talks about is that the concepts that he teaches point to an inward experience. The Four Noble Truths are ultimately felt inside as a lived experience. The Seven Enlightenment Factors are heart qualities that we begin to actually notice inside of ourselves. We notice what it feels like to be more compassionate. We start noticing what it feels like to have equanimity and the freedom that it brings when we can feel equanimous. We start to notice, oh, I'm keeping my precepts. Wow, how that transforms my mind, this lived experience of being in authenticity with oneself. Concentration, again, we can talk about the fancy schmancy jhanas and the ecstatic states and the uh, arupa jhanas, immaterial states, but the question is what does that mean? What does it mean for us to have that experience inside? And so the Buddha was really about reminding us that the Eightfold Path. At the superficial level is a map, but at the experiential level is actually inside of us. The Eightfold Path is, yes, it's something we're walking, but what we're walking is into an actual experience of something. We're actually living the experience. And that's where the Dharma really lights up, when we can move from the idea to understanding what it means to us to the felt feeling of the experience in meditation practice. We can all talk about equanimity and balance, right? We know what it's like to have balance in our lives. We know that feeling when something hooks the mind and we can't let the mind go. We all know what that feels like. But when you go into meditation and you watch the mind clinging, and then you let go and you feel that release in the heart as it lets go of grasping, now we're at that third tool of wisdom, which is direct experience of the Dharma. At that point, the Dharma is something lived and experienced. It's not a map at all. It's the way that your heart and mind are actually operating and how you're engaging yourself and engaging others. So one of the things that's really different from learning other things is that the thing we're learning is us, right? The thing we're actually learning is our own hearts and minds. It's so different than learning something in the, in the, in the external world. So that's where the Dharma becomes challenging, is finding ways to learn the experience and taking that which is some kind of theory or abstraction and making it a real fun, creative, experiential, lived moment in real time in the present moment. So that's where the Buddha encourages us to... It's how he encourages us to think of the way we learn the Dharma. Now, I wanted to tie this into our previous Dharma talk on spiritual bypass and i gave a few talks there on spiritual related to spiritual bypass and if you haven't listened to that talk it's on the podcast i highly recommend it because when i actually listen to parts of it again i think it's one of the best versions of that subject that i've ever talked about and i had a couple other people mention it and when i listened back through some the other day i've only given that talk maybe two or three times in 10 years and it's actually the best version i think of that it's clear and when i listened to it i was like oh that's clear (laughs) finally i was able to say it in a way that was actually clear so spiritual bypass just to remind us spiritual bypass is when we take a spiritual practice and instead of using it for the awakening we use it to bypass the awakening and repress or harm ourselves or harm others we use it to deny rather than awaken right we use it to be more in touch with the shadow rather than in touch with the the Awakening. So, I want to talk about these three prajnas because it ties right into our conversation on spiritual bypass. The intellectual understanding of the Dharma, the meaning of the Dharma in our real life, and the direct experience in our practice have to be in balance. If they get out of balance, we can start dancing around the experience and our experience won't be as deep or fruitful as we would like it to be so for example the first prajna is the intellectual understanding of the dharma and it can be so fun to read books and listen to dharma talks and to get into the whole nitty-gritty of the eightfold path but we can hang out there too long we can spend lots of times looking at suttas and translating things we can spend too much time thinking about the dharma and not feeling the dharma Right, where it becomes kind of away from the heart, a little bit too on the heady side. And if you don't know what that means, I would invite you to go online and to chat groups about the Dharma. <laughs> 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 it's war in there, my friends. Like, oh my goodness, the Buddha meant this. No, he did not mean that. I'm going to list four quotes to prove myself. What, it, it's just argument after argument, long-winded arguments about what the Buddha meant and... Was he really awakened? And what does this lineage say? And, it's, and these are like people who really love the Dharma. They love the Dharma. They love reading about the Dharma and studying the Dharma. And their meditators. But they also really love to get in there and just spend in that first prajna and just debate and study and get into that whole thing. <laughs> When I thought of telling you that is this evening, I then was prepping for this Dharma talk and I, I often go into some of the chat rooms when I'm doing ideas to see what people are chatting about and I'll start reading and then 40 minutes later I'm like, get out of this! What are you doing? Like, this is enough! Like You're just down the rabbit hole. Like, this person says that and this. Oh, what does that mean? And then suddenly I'm lost in the hole. That's what we mean about, you gotta be careful that the Dharma is this abstract intellectual exercise. We do a lot of that in the West. With Western philosophy, truth is an argument about something. It's something you can write on paper. In the Dharma, it starts as a hypothesis and becomes a self-experiment. It's something we've got to try out. So you can spend some time thinking about it, but don't spend so much time that you're picking a side, and like, you know, suddenly you're on a team of people that believe. Like, be careful with that first. You've got to be careful. there. I, this is a note to myself as well, because I can get in there and it's bad. The second one, right? The second prajna is asking ourselves the meaning of these teachings for ourselves. The balance here is this. It's important that we ask when we're learning the teachings, what does this mean in my life? Because if we don't do that, it's going to be hard to be passionate about the practice. But there is this slippery slope that happens where we start to customize the Dharma too much to our preferences, right? And so, it's good to customize. Like, I'm having a certain suffering in my life, so I'm going to find out what the tools are. So I'm, it's going to be a lived experience. But the Buddha talks about, if we personalize the Dharma too much, then we start practicing from ego. It's like my Dharma. And my Dharma has all the parts I like and none of the parts I don't like. It's like a it's like customizing something on Amazon, right? We want to be creative, but we won't, don't want to be so graspy that our ego takes over and starts to customize it like customizing a suit or some, or some clothing to ourselves. Because we have to know that the Dharma is going to challenge our preferences. So we have to be careful. What we talk about is that each of those prajnas can stimulate the ego, right? can stimulate the ego. So the ego can get involved in the way that we study the Dharma and customize the Dharma and be in the Dharma. So We have to be aware of how we're engaging and then the last one again is the meditation the meditation of course is a significant part of the Dharma but what the Buddha says is that if we don't hear the teachings then we can't know them personally and if we don't know them personally we can't meditate but similarly sometimes we meditate for a long time but we're not necessarily doing the practice correctly because the hearing part it wasn't correct to begin with. So we miss here and then we sort of customize the dharma in a particular way and then we get stuck meditating in a way and we don't go back to the hearing to see if we're doing it properly, which can include hearing teachers, hearing others course correcting our position. Meditation can be so enjoyable and so fun that sometimes we just we can get lost year after year practicing meditation and not returning to the top layer of asking ourselves, what is the teaching? What are the tools? Am I doing it, am I doing it? Do I understand what's happening here? So any of the three domains of experience can be lopsided. We can get too clingy and too lost in any of these ways of experiencing the Dharma. I know students who've spent years studying the Dharma and create an ego around knowing all the poly terminology and everything like this. There's nothing wrong with it, but it's the ego that comes up of like, I can quote the suttas, and I know all of this stuff, but they never get into the meditation, so there's a, there's a lack of balance. Or, they understand the Dharma, but they're not asking themselves, where is this important in my life? Oftentimes, what happens, and this is really noticeable as a form of bypass, is that sometimes we, d- sometimes we don't want to apply the Dharma to our lives because it reveals something that's vulnerable for ourselves there might be a tool or a technique or one of the meditations that if we were to apply it to ourselves we have to deal with grief we have to deal with loss we have to deal with something upsetting for ourselves and so sometimes we don't want to apply it to ourselves we try to keep it slightly distant from the heart right so it's possible that we inadvertently push it away and we don't let it touch us we want the Dharma to really feel into our hearts and our minds and so sometimes we can keep the Dharma a little bit at bay so it doesn't go all the way in because it's something there that we're not ready to deal with so we just have to be careful of that and again meditation as well sometimes we can get so wrapped up in the experience of meditation that we forget to check back in and ask ourselves what am I doing again (laughs) what is this thing why am I doing this I'm one of those people I can get I love the experience of meditation so much the actual sensations of meditation i love the sensation of meditation that sometimes i don't want to do anything else i just want to oh, i just want to be present i just want to be present i can push the world away and get a little bit too attached to the experience of meditating and not check back in and ask myself where is the suffering where is the healing need to be And it's easy to use the uh, meditation as an escape from the moment rather than a feeling deeply into the moment and it's slightly different one or the other so That's another example. So those are the three prajnas, the three ways that the Buddha talks about uh, approaching the Dharma as a student and how to be educated uh, in the experience. So thank you for listening and sharing the evening with us with that. On that note, uh, let's plop into presence and uh, finish with some loving kindness. Let's just take a few intentional breaths and on the exhale let's relax fully into embodied being noticing again that your body takes up space in this room has shape and form as it breathes really noticing the fact of sitting in this moment And take a moment to notice mood how do you feel in this moment and how do you know it attuned to mood grounded in this living body Let us finish this evening by asking ourselves this question. In this moment, if I could wish anything for all beings and know it would come to pass, what would that wish be? Offer that wish to the world with each breath. May all beings be free from suffering in this very lifetime. Thank you my friends for your joyous presence thanks friends online in our digital world thanks for coming
0: thanks for joining us here at wednesday wake up we honor the traditional buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge so this podcast will always be ad free and will never be behind a paywall this podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners if you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.WednesdayWakeUp.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.